0: Well, hello everyone uh, and a very warm welcome to the Institute for Government for this event. How should public appointments be reformed? I'm Matthew Gill. Before we start the event, uh, just some brief housekeeping arrangements. We will be tweeting from IFG events and using the hashtag IFGPublicAppointments, so please do follow and uh, tweet along. If you're watching online, uh, please send in your questions as early as you like. Please keep them relevant to to the subject, obviously, and if you give your name and where you're viewing from, it's always great to see. You can post your questions in the panel that's to the right of your screen. For those in the room, a microphone will be available during the Q&A portion of the event, so do start thinking about what you might ask, and we'll have a video and a sound recording on our website within 24 hours. Ministers make a wide range of appointments to key roles across the public sector, and ensuring a high calibre of appointees is important. There are many excellent appointees leading organisations ranging from NHS England to the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, but the public appointment system is under strain. In particular, there is persistent public criticism of perceived cronyism, particularly in some high profile cases like Ofcom and the Office for Students. Politicians don't always trust the system to deliver appointees in whom they can have confidence. Those who administer the appointments process can find it chaotic and pressured, and candidates can sometimes be put off by delays in decision making and may be unable to understand how decisions have been made. Now the overall picture is mixed and by no means all negative, but most people involved in the public appointments process agree that it could work better. There is less consensus about what to do. In August we published a report called Reforming Public Appointments and this looks in depth at the system and sets out a roadmap for change. The Government has begun to suggest some reforms and there are welcome initiatives such as the Boardroom Apprentice Scheme which aim to encourage a wider range of candidates. But we argue that much more should be done to reduce delays, enhance transparency and increase the scope of regulation while retaining the principle that public appointments are made by Ministers from amongst those candidates judged appointable on merit. We aren't here today to discuss the Institute's report specifically. That's available online. Uh, We'll email a link to everybody afterwards, and there are are a small number of hard copies on the landing for you to peruse outside. But we're delighted to welcome a very distinguished panel uh, today who can discuss what is working and what is not working in the public appointment system from a range of perspectives, focusing particularly on the relationships between the public appointments process, ministers and parliament. So I'd now like to introduce our our panel. Um, Beginning uh, to my right, William Shawcross CVO was appointed Commissioner for Public Appointments last year. He served as Chair of the Charity Commission between 2012 and 2018 after a long career in journalism and writing. Thank you for joining us, William. Lord Jonathan Evans is Chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life. He served as the Director General of the British Security Service between 2007 and 2013. Welcome, Jonathan. Baroness Simone Finn is the former Deputy Chief of Staff at Number 10, and helped to set up the Centre for Public Appointments in the Cabinet Office. She will join the Committee on Standards in Public Life later this month. It's good to have you with us, Simone. Thank you. Sue Gray is second Permanent Secretary at the Department for Leveling Up and at the Cabinet Office, and she was previously Director General for Propriety and Ethics at the Cabinet Office. A very warm welcoming to you, Thank Sue. You. And finally, last but not least, Sir Bernard Jenkin MP is Chair of the Liaison Committee and former Chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee in the House of Commons. He's been a Conservative MP since 1992. Thank you for being here Bernard. So uh, welcome everyone and let's start by asking our panellists how the public appointments process looks from their particular positions in the system. So William, if I begin with you, um, you began as commissioner a year ago. Uh, what have you found? What works well and where is there room for improvement? Well, uh,
1: as, as you said, um, every organization can work better. Anyth- anytime in government or out of government, that, that's a given. Um, I have actually been very pleasantly surprised by the way in which the public appointment system works. Um, and it's been a huge privilege for me to take this job, to be, to be given this job after a, a panel and uh, to see, after, 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 as you said, running the Charity Commission for six years, which was a wonderful job, to see how public appointments work. It's an absolutely crucial area of government and one in which obviously the public is deeply and properly interested. Now, it's a very complicated landscape and it's been a great privilege for me and quite a difficult task to try to learn to understand all its nooks and crannies and the way in which it functions. I just want to state the obvious to you, that the role of the Commissioner is not to choose candidates, let alone to make appointments. My role is to provide, is, is much lesser than that, and the title, the Commissioner for Public Appointments, sounds rather wonderfully Gilbert and Sullivan, I always think, but it's not as, uh, as, it's not as, as powerful as the role of the Chief High Executioner or, or, or his, any of his sidekicks. My role is to provide independent assurance that the processes of appointments, and particularly the panels which make many public appointments are run properly, openly, fairly, and uh, according to the rules of uh, the governance code. We um, look at the appointments to some 330 public bodies a year from the chairman of the BBC and the director general of the BBC, chairman of Ofcom, which was a controversial one earlier this year, to um, much smaller public appointments in, in Wales, for example. But many of those 300 bodies to which we make appointments do hugely important work. They all do important work, some of them are much bigger scale like Ofcom than than small Welsh NHS organisations, but they too are obviously an important part of the structure of the country and the way it works. And in fact, um, of the 1,000 appointments and reappointments that we make every year, there are very few issues of uh, problems that arise and those that do arise, become, uh, in, especially if they're in big bodies like Ofcom or the Charity Commission, or before my time, the Office for Students, they sometimes create a bit of a stir and a stink. But I think it would be wrong to say that be, uh, uh, the Ofcom one that we had this year and the Charity Commission one we had this year, it's wrong because of those two examples to say that this system is broke. It ain't broke. And I don't think it needs a huge amount of fixing. Having said that, the report that you've done is extremely useful and careful and, and and helpful. But I don't but I but I I don't want to give the impression now that there's a vast amount of work to be done. It's a great temptation when people come into government say to say we need new I, I need new I, I need more 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 staff, I need more money, I need new, more powers. And I don't think that's the proper thing, in particularly in a time of great crises in other parts of government. I don't think I should do that. This, as I say, this is not in crisis, this system. It's, there are problems, and one of the major problems, I think, that I've encountered this year is one of delay, that uh, public appointments processes take much, much too long. Not all of them, but many of them. And that's very, very off-putting to candidates and dis- deters candidates from applying. And that is a very serious issue. And the, 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 the problem of candidate care is one that I have tried to focus on and will try to focus on further and speak to departments more uh, more, more, I don't want to use the word sternly, but more urgently about this, and to number 10 with the new, um, the new government that's in, installed now, because that I think is is, is hugely important. Um, and just briefly in closing, my, my role is to ensure within the context I've already described that the, uh, that the process of the um, enshrined in the code of conduct, the government's governance code is followed. And that means, for example, Political activity must not be the reason for an appointment, but it cannot be, It should not be the bar to an appointment. What, is ma- what matters about political activity of any candidate applying is that it should be transparent. And one of my roles is to see that independent members, uh, particularly uh, senior independent members uh, are, are on very important panels, are chosen with great, great care. And that's something I've done. Uh, my, with my wonderful but small staff, have done with, with, uh, with CARE, I hope, this year. And we haven't had any problems with that. No, no, no there's, there's not been massive government resistance to any of the things I've suggested or the people's uh, independent panel members who I'm, whom I've questioned. It's been a cooperative exercise, which I think has has been very good. But anyway, I think I've already spoken more than five minutes and I have got other things to say about diversity and so on, but
0: I think I should turn it back to you now at this point. Great, thanks very much. So many themes there, including not to extrapolate from (coughs) high profile cases to everything, uh, but also to focus on some of the work that could be done around delays. Um, Jonathan, um, the Committee on Standards of Public Life looked at this issue last year. Yeah. Um, what did you find? What do you think could I be improved? Think,
2: yeah, we, we did a report last year called Upholding Public Standards uh, and we took evidence, amongst other things, on the appointment system, although not in as much detail as, as your report. Uh, I think you know, what we saw was broadly consistent with a lot of what William has been saying, which is we did not conclude that the, that the process was bust uh, and that this was you know, a, a, a disaster area at all. But we did agree with, I think, the comments at the time of the then Commissioner that the system was under pressure. And there is an inherent balance within the public appointment system between, on the one hand, the role of ministers in making the appointments, and on the other hand, the the independent element that tries to ensure that appointments are done in a way that is perceived to be and is fair and transparent. And to make that balance work effectively, you need a degree of um, of restraint on both sides, uh, and to, to, make, to want to make the balance work, uh, and one of the, some of the evidence that we heard suggested that it was un, there were pressures. Uh, we certainly uh, heard evidence around the question of delay, uh, as William says. Um, we were concerned about the apparent growth of unregulated appointments, and it was quite unclear sometimes as to exactly where the line was between a regulated and unregulated appointments. Uh, we were concerned about the, uh, the what appeared to be attempts to, uh, to brief in advance to the media that a candidate had been selected and was seen as a favorite, because one of the critical things, of course, is that anybody should feel that they are able to apply and that their candidature will be treated uh, on its merits. And if there is a perception that uh, this has already been uh, you know, agreed, that will deter people from stepping forward. Uh, The the process of applying and going through a public appointment procedure is time consuming and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of thought and people won't do it if they don't have confidence that the system is fair. And it seemed to us very important that that we do not allow that perception to come in, particularly for high profile and and, uh, very important appointments that in some way this is a done deal. Uh, whether or not that was the case, it's the perception that actually matters quite a lot in this context. And it goes also, uh, and I'm sure we'll come on to this later, on, uh, to the question of diversity of candidates and ensuring that it's not always the usual, candid- the, the usual suspects who apply. Uh, and we, we need to ensure that there is, uh, you know, perceived to be, as well as actually being, a fair process. So we did feel that there were areas that needed attention. Uh, we made recommendations on that and I expect we'll come to some of that uh, going forward. But we did not conclude that the system was bust.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so um, points there on the scope of regulation and also avoiding the perception of, of uh, appointments being a done deal when people um, apply. Um, Simon, you worked in number 10 for um, a long period on, on these issues. Um, how does the system look from, from that perspective? And in particular, do ministers get the support they need in engaging with the system? And how can they approach the appointments process better?
3: Thank you. Um, it's, it's, It's good to be able to talk about the role of number 10 because that's always attracts a good deal more attention and potential criticism. Um, the useful, uh, so, so I just want to clarify a few things about what the role of number 10 was basically um, is. Um, firstly, public appointments are, but especially the big implementation ones, are very important. You know, government gets judged on whether or not they can implement their agenda. That's what the public is is assessing them on. And therefore, the individuals who are running the arm's length bodies that are meant to deliver that are, are, are critical. And um, And therefore for for the prime minister to be taking an interest um in in these big high profile jobs is, is not uh, is, is is not unusual or or sort of suspect if you, if you see what i mean um so it's uh, you know um normally we wouldn't look at all the appointments as william pointed out there are huge numbers of appointments that different departments and different ministers make Um, But it was the ones that were the absolute priority for for the Prime Minister, the ones that she showed a lot of interest in, Um, for example, um, the National Health Service, um, when the NHS chair came up, that was when we all um, worked together with Number 10 and the Department of Health and with headhunters and brought everyone together to make sure we had a very strong field of candidates. in terms of number 10 showing an interest, um, one of my observations has been that across Whitehall, the public appointments of um, the, the units or whatever in different departments are, are often seen as a bit of a poor relation. Um, they're not given the uh, priority they need. So to answer your question on our ministers being given the right support, not necessarily. So the fact that if, if at the center there is, there, is is, there is some interest being taken, That is actually quite good because it raises the profile. It means that ministers have to think about how they are delivering the agenda for the for the government. It also see, uh, seeks to bring all views together. There's nothing more annoying than somebody coming back and saying number ten things. I mean, number ten is a building, not a person. And um, and you know so and you'll often find that there are different views within number ten, for example. Let alone different views across Whitehall. So um, so it's quite useful to um, actually sit down, everyone bringing their perspective to the table. Um, the different um, advisors to different ministers who are responsible for the appointments and asking them what they actually want from that appointment because that informs the job specification and the sort of person who's being, you know, sought to to, to run that role. It's also a very useful tool for improving uh, diversity because you can get the spectrum across the board and you can bring together candidates who might have been near misses on other jobs elsewhere to say, well, actually... That candidate might be good for that role, um, so it, it's 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 actually it, it's less suspicious. And as I say, you know the the NHS England appointment was a, was a very good example of how bringing all sides together was was quite useful. Um, in terms of do ministers receive high quality advice? Um, what I was quite shocked about when I started again is that when I set up the centre for well, we set up the centre for public appointments with Sue we sought to get the data from across government to get the broad perspective because you know, we were trying to increase then the, the numbers of women in, who were sort of encouraged to apply for public appointments and see what the barriers were for them. And, and we made a few set, set sensible changes in terms of making, it more transparent, making it easier to understand, giving help to candidates, holding events, and doing the hard work of trying to find diverse candidates. Um, and it was a great disappointment that all of that data seemed to have been lost. And it does show that unless there is focus on it, and you know, Sue came back on board again, which was wonderful. And we, we you know, we did seek to reconstitute the data. That drives the forward look of appointments because the key to stopping delays is actually to start planning in good time up front. So by the time you're going to running into the appointments, you know, you start planning the job specification, thinking about the type of candidates, engage headhunters before a competition opens. Make sure you've got some interested candidates. Make sure the competition ends a good two or three months before the job actually needs to be taken up so that important good people can actually give up what they need to do to take up that job. None of this was there because the data wasn't there. And th- that I, I, you know, I, I feel that great work has been done and particularly reconstituting the cabinet office as a, as a convening uh, body. So um, just, I mean, I could go on and on and on, um, but but um, I, I j- just on, on the regulation, I, just on your start as, you know, your, your opening paragraph with this. Um, the perceived cronyism, um, I do think that the briefing of appointments um, and leaking of preferred candidates was deeply unhelpful. Um, I think we've probably noticed that over the past couple of years that that has lessened. Um, and it should not happen and it's, it's unfair and most of the candidates who were briefed out didn't end up taking those jobs. It's totally counterproductive anyway or didn't even bother applying because they get lacerated. The press needs to be a bit more careful about attacking people who actually want to put themselves forward to do something in the public good but the press seems to think it's a field day as well to, to criticize um, anyone who wants to do one of these jobs and, and, I, and I don't quite understand why not um, I don't think politicians don't trust the system but to go to the inherent conflict as, as which Jonathan mentioned between um, the be, be, between um, you know the independent element and the ministerial merit element it's, it, the governance code is, is, is quite clear on that. What should happen is that you don't want to appoint, as you put it, what are the incapable and the uh, uh, in, uh, inexperienced or whatever. You don't. You, you should not be appointing people who are not capable of doing the job. So the the, real, the importance of the role spec is to have an objective assessment on how those candidates for, should fill the role, and, um, and and that is the independent element. That is what should give confidence in the system, and there should be no question, you know, the minister can direct on, you know, suggest candidates, they say what what's the important elements of the, the role are, and the independent panel gives the assurance and the comfort that that should be working. Um, the minister is there, should therefore in a good competition have a choice of good candidates and should be the, the person to make the decision on merit. So it's actually, there is a process to allow for that inherent conflict. What what I thought was rather depressing about your, uh, your opening paragraph is that the, for the administrators, the process is chaotic and pressured. The administrators administer the process. So, um, you know, that there is a point at which you have to say, you are, you are responsible for that. Um, It shouldn't be chaotic and pressured. There needs to be adequate planning. Um, And in terms of candidate care, I absolutely couldn't agree more and, the delays are a product often of um, not, not enough forward planning. Um, but I will, I, I will leave it Thanks, there Samantha. for there's, now. Thanks,
0: you. There's lots there. <laughs> and I think um, that the point about data and process is something actually that we focus quite a bit on in the report. So I think maybe Sue, as we turn yeah. to you, let's start there. I mean, I guess the... the, the, the and maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what, what the Cabinet Office is, is planning on. Yeah data and process. I mean, recognising that the cabinet office doesn't control what departments do on public appointments, but it can put a process in place and think about how data is collected. Um, Because some of the debates that we're having around what causes delays um, are actually um, potentially more fractious than they need to be, because the data isn't there to really prove where
4: the problems are. So, um, thank you. And first of all, I would say actually that my, my comments now are going to very much follow on from Simone's. Um First of all, I, just, I do want to say I think we are getting some really good people in public appointments. I've sat on many panels in the last year and actually we've got great people applying and we've got great people being successful, um, which is really, really great. I mean, there are great jobs, um, um, but we definitely need good people applying. I think we have got more to do around diversity, and that's where the, di- the data particularly comes okay. into play, but also around uh, this pace and planning for competitions. So first of all, I want to say a big shout out to all the civil servants actually that work on public appointments across government, because I think actually they're doing a great job. Um, but I do think the area where we can do a lot better is around earlier planning. Um, I think actually we should be looking at appointments when they're due to coming up about a year in advance and so that we actually do think about whether we should be recommending reappointment um, or going out to competition. But you need to have your data, you need to understand... Uh, what, what that is telling you so I think that the the work that some colleagues of mine are doing in the cabinet office um, around establishing a database and a, a new system to actually track all of that data make it more accessible for people to apply um, but I think also make it easier for us as well to have better customer care with people I think you know people put a lot of effort into applying for roles and you know if they 're not successful for one I think it 's incumbent upon us actually to actually go back to them and actually give feedback um, but also to uh, seek to encourage them to apply for other roles which may you know actually be perfect for them as well so I think we need to do that. Um, I think on planning ahead I think you know all too often some of the appointments I see coming up at the very last minute which means that you have to reappoint, or you, that's the recommendation, or you proceed with a gap. And that actually is very difficult for diversity because, you know, that that's where you can bring in better diversity. And I, I'm going to give one shout-out for, for the Boardroom Apprentice Scheme. I am so proud of the team that have developed this. Um, it's just been launched. Um, it's running really successfully in Northern Ireland, and uh, I haven't sought to duplicate that. I've just taken that and actually the person running it in Northern Ireland is running it for us here. We've got 40 plus host boards from across the UK and and that is going to make a real difference. These are proper board roles for a year. People get eight days learning and development. They get a buddy on the board. They get help, you know, questions to ask. That's going to really do us brilliantly uh, in terms of diversity. But I very much agree with a lot of the comments that are made.
0: Thanks very much, Sue. I guess the particular one which we also found there is the need to plan ahead. These processes take longer than
4: most people think. Yeah, Um, they certainly do.
0: So um, Bernard, um, what role do you see for Parliament uh, in in all this? Um, And and what um, further protections might you want to carve out um, uh, for roles, for instance, which scrutinize the behavior of ministers?
5: Well, it's a loaded question, isn't it? um, we've just heard from two of the panelists that the system is not broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, think there's a great danger in this whole discussion. Um, imagining that, you know, regulation is going to make the whole thing perfect. The more we regulate it, the better it will be. Um, uh, there's no evidence for that. Um, uh, the, the regulation can address certain public concerns, but it can't address the way people behave and the way attitudes people have um, and the thing, other things that get in the way of public appointments. I think what the first thing I would say to any select committee scrutinising a public appointment or scrutinising a public body is bad publicity about an appointment discourages good public appointments. And, um, you know, the more that this is sort of seen as a conspiracy of party donors or trade union buddies being slotted into roles into, I mean, those days are completely gone. That's the way it used to be, the tap on the shoulder from the man in Whitehall saying, uh, Johnny, the Secretary of State's jolly interested in you doing this job, would you, t- would you take it on? Um, uh, we've come a very, very long way from that. But I think there is um, a danger in thinking that more rules, more procedure, more exposure is going to encourage better candidates to come forward. I think um, there, we've got to recognise also that there is, as, as uh, Simone <coughs> indicated, there is actually a tension between democratic accountability, ministers being able to decide who runs public bodies, and regulation. What is the, what is the correct balance between that tension? Um, because the idea of, I mean, the implication of one or two of the recommendations is that somehow that The minister should be there to rubber stamp stamp um, one of two or three selected candidates and and shouldn't complain about it. Um, um, Well, if you want to get to that point, um, I've got some other suggestions. Um, Incidentally, I do think there are some very good points in the paper. Um, It's about time NED appointments were brought into the framework of public appointments. Um, They're very powerful roles uh, that's entirely subject to Secretary of State or number 10 patronage at the moment. I mean, yes, there's some input, an interview with the cabinet secretary and various things um, to filter out. Um, but, but they're almost like um, SPAD appointments or um, 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 sort of non-ministerial, ministerial appointments. Um, and they are a part of a career path. A, a, a number of NEDs have become ministers. Um, it's, a, it's seen as an apprenticeship to becoming um, a minute, getting a peerage and becoming a minister. So, you know, the, there is a lot of unregulated patronage there and there ought to be some, that's a good suggestion. Um, uh, the idea that board chairs of public bodies should be able to make the appointments to their boards, subject to Secretary of State approval. I mean, I remember having one conversation with a very, very important public body chair, exa- completely exasperated, he knew exactly what the skills gaps were on his board, and yet the system just keep regurgitating people um, according to a completely different criteria. Um, uh, And the Minister wanted this person, or the Secretary of State wanted this person on, and they were appointable, so he got them instead. I mean, uh, boards have to have more responsibility for their own composition. I think that's a very good suggestion But how you implement that, I'm not quite sure. But I think by far the most important point you touch on in one recommendation is the early engagement of ministers in the process. Mm. Because what goes wrong is, oh, such and such appointment's coming up. Minister, oh, I want this guy. Oh, right, okay, well, we'll put him on the list. And then a few months later, he gets the list. so and so is not on the list, because it was a crazy idea. Nobody explained to him at the time. Um, and um, he looks at all the people who are being offered, and he says, but this is not what I want at all. And um, uh, and then he asked for the person specification. That's the first time he's looked at it. Well, I mean, this is a complete disastrous way to run it. Um, one of the recommendations we made, and I think probably the most important recommendation we made in one of our reports, was the minister should be engaged right from the outset of the process, as, as, as Simone said as well. That That is the way to avoid accidents. Get the minister to approve the job specification. Get him to sign it off, um, because then he's engaged in the process and he will be more committed, or she, to the outcome. Um, because I think um, there is a sort of divide. There is a suspicion that it's always the usual suspects that will apply. And um, in terms of diversity of thought and diversity of type of person, and um, leaving aside the shortage of women and ethnic minorities and disabled people, I mean, that's certainly true. Um, but in terms of diversity of thought, the system doesn't produce diversity of thought. I have to say that the standard competency-based interview or conducted by the public sector is quite far away from what businesses do and what, indeed, other parts of government do in order to make sure you're getting the right people. Um, they can be a, a bit constipated and people who give the right answers sort of get the job and people who don't get, give the right answers, oh, that person won't fit. I've been on a panel where I was told, oh, no, that person won't fit at all he won't have any influence at all, and we had to rerun the interview. In the end, I got the person I wanted, um, who turned out to be an outstanding public service leader. Um, But, you know, it's not always obvious that the person who doesn't fit is going to be the right person. Um, um, The role of select committees is to provide an atmosphere in which these better conversations, promoting trust and understanding between ministers and officials, between departments and public bodies, um, are able to take place. Uh, what, what select committees should not be doing is um, openly second guessing the, the decision of the minister and the system that has come up with the name. It should not be, um, it should not be looking for a scandal in every public appointment. Um, it should be thinking forward. Uh, that the best pre-appointment hearings are, 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 are respectful, short, and I have it on my record. I did one that was much, much too long, you remember. It was my first pre-appointment hearing I chaired. And they shouldn't be more than an hour. They should be respectful, um, and, um, and they should be aiming to approve the appointment if at all possible. Um, in one or two occasions, we did not. And I would say that there should be a better procedure for, uh, I mean, if, 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 if an approval is not made, you're into pretty big disaster territory. You're effectively undoing months, if not a year's work, to find that person and get them into that position in front of the committee. Uh, that person is in danger of being humiliated um, uh, by the decision of the committee. That person, is, go- if they're then appointed by the minister, their authority is already impaired because they weren't approved by the select committee. Um, it's all potentially disastrous. I think select committees should not publish reports immediately after pre-appointment hearings if there's a problem there should be a conversation with the minister and Simon will remember that that's what I did on one occasion. And we saved a lot of pain and face for everybody concerned um, and uh, we got a much better p- appointment out of it in the end. but um, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's a delicate thing and we've got to remember we're dealing with people, um, people who've got reputations, people with feelings and we really are putting off people by some of the more adversarial approach that we've taken. Um, I think a select committee should always remember that, that in, the, in normal circumstances the pre-appointment hearing is the development of a new relationship with the chair of that public body. How do they want that relationship to start? And don't they want, doesn't the committee want the um, public body to feel that part of their authority comes from the approval of the select committee? and it will create a relationship between that public body and the select committee that will be positive for the future. Um, um, I think that's all I've got to say. Thank you very much.
4: I mean,
0: uh, <laughs> um, so um, yeah, a lot, a, a lot there, and I think a, a delicate balance between um, sort of ministerial influence and, and the role of regulation uh, around this. I mean, I guess that's a good subject on which to turn briefly back to, back to you, William, and I mean, your experience leading um, the, um, the the regulatory uh, function um, and I guess how do you think that your role is best performed and would you want Different powers to those you have. I mean, I'm thinking both in terms of. I mean, we're having a conversation about, and it's one of actually the most popular question that's come up online so far is actually around how do you eradicate cronyism for, um, for public appointments when independent panels can be influenced and ministers automatically make the final decisions. Now, if that's a matter of perception, um, does the commissioner have a role in changing that? And would you want different powers for specific types of appointments? Um, as, as compared to other types of appointments, because there's obviously there's significant appointments, there's what we call in the report constitutional watchdogs that yeah. look at behaviour of Parliament Ministers. Uh, I will certainly address mm. all those important
1: questions. Can I just take up what mm. Bernard was saying at the end about the relationship between an appointee and the committee? Yep. <coughs> so the select committee. Uh, I appeared before his committee when I was um, uh, nominated to um, take on the Charity Commission back in 2011. And uh, it was a fairly tough hearing, and, um, but a very interesting one. And uh, it was particularly, um, so there was a wonderful Labour member from Newport, Paul Flynn, who is unfortunately dead now, uh, but he, he was quite a cantankerous and aggressive and very left wing member of, of, of the committee, and he took instant disapproval to me. Um, which I completely understood, because I'd written a book about the Queen Mother, and he said, you're just a flunky of the monarchy, a flunky of the, of the court. I said, well, I hope that's not entirely true. And he said, um, the, that wonderful film, The King's Speech, had just been released. And he said, Helena Bonham Carter, who uh, played the Queen Mother in The King's Speech, said that your book was total crap. <laughs> And I said, yes, Mr. Flynn, you're right. She, she did say that, um, uh, but I'm, and I was very sorry because I think she's a wonderful actress. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> uh, uh, despite Paul Flynn's, despite, despite uh, Paul Flynn's misgivings, uh, I was a select, uh, uh, the, the committee agreed to appoint me, and um, I'm, I got to know him very well. I made a point of getting to know him because I thought he was a wonderful man. And I, I uh, appointed, when I p- appointed my own board, a, a Welsh member who was a brilliant young Welsh lawyer uh, who spoke fluent Welsh, she'd grown up in Wales. And I, whenever I was visited him, I took her with me. And that <laughs> helped, helped a lot, I think. <laughs> and we became actually rather good friends. And he was the um, MP for Newport and we had an office in Newport and I really valued his input. So the relationship between the committee and the and appointees is, as you say, absolutely crucial. I think crucial. I
4: should declare an interest as well. I think I was on your panel to recruit you. You were. Well, <laughs> I, I,
5: no cronyism
4: here. No, no, no. <laughs> I didn't know William.
1: And you were in Sue. the Cabinet Office? Oh, I was in
3: the
4: Cabinet <laughs> Office. Yes, well,
1: I'd never met Stu before. You Paul Berger, never, had never before.
4: met before. No. We rarely meet. And you. I
1: hardly ever see you now. I know. <laughs> Anyway, going back to your question, how, how can we make it better? I think that a lot of people have talked about um, delays, delays, delays. That's really, really important. And, and, and candidate care and Simon agreed. And um, one of the things I found this year is that uh, once the panel has made its selection of four or five appointable people, um, it takes too, often takes too long for the departments to choose amongst them. And sometimes I was told that was because number, the question went to number 10 and number 10 was uh, unable to make a quick decision and given the, um, given the, the, the nature of number 10 over the last 10 years and the problems in number 10, I can understand why the, why the delays were, were, were too long, but they shouldn't be and that it is a really serious issue. On diversity in general, I'll just give, give you, if I may, the statistics that my brilliant staff have done for last year on of, of the uh, of regional diversity, which I think is incredibly important. 57% um, appoint, of appointees come from outside the southeast in the last year. Um, and, but the purport, and that has gone down. The proportion of London and southeast appointees has been rising, which I think is, I must try and work against. I plan to spend a lot of time in the northeast and northwest and other areas of the country this, in this coming year to try and encourage more people who hadn't thought about public appointments to think about it and because it is a really interesting um, job to do and wonderful to serve one's country. A lot of people understand that and lots of people want to serve their country. And so I'm going to try and encourage more, more uptake from farther out from the Southeast. On ethnicity, those from minority ethnic ba- backgrounds increased last year for the, and became, it was the second highest year on record disability was the weak spot um, um the disability appointments continue to stall, and that's something we have to work on on gender last year the, the when the women's appointments came up and were the second highest year on record and um one of the people talking about cronyism people the people can worry about political cronyism and the the, the <laughs> numbers of appointees who had had significant political activity was still below ten percent, which is roughly what it always is and um, two thirds of new members have never new, new appointees have never had any other public appointments, so that was good. One of the worst things which I also need to concentrate on, and you 'll forgive me if it, this comes from me, is that uh, a, lot of two, a lot of the appointees are too old, um, <laughs> and less than half of them are aged under thirty five. And that's really a, a serious issue that uh, we must address to get younger people to take up political appointments. And it's difficult because of the cost of it and the time that it takes out of young, younger people doing their, making their own careers and so on. But on the, and on the question of diversity, the other diversity that I want to try and look at more is diversity of thought, which is really difficult mm. to identify and to Pursue. But it's um, my predecessor, Peter Riddle, who was a wonderful commissioner, said before he left um, two years ago there is, of course, a danger of creating a new orthodoxy in the name of diversity and a new orthodoxy of people who have similar ideas in the Southeast. And that's why he and I think that we should pursue. Uh, other geographical areas in the pursuit of diversity of thought. I'd just like to read you, if I may, a, a couple of sentences from a young woman um, who wrote to me about this, saying yeah, the problem people think that the, is, is the worst in appointments is venal ministers appointing their mates. Well, that is, might be a problem, but it's not the most important problem. It's negligible compared to the really pernicious and widespread closed shop in the inadvertent one Created by a load of people who speak applicantees and panelees and civil servicees. Those of us who do speak it have no idea of the privilege it gives us. And to those that have it, more will be given. They're cleaning up the public roles. That's and she was saying you must try and get people from different areas, different backgrounds, different works, different parts of the country, different jobs to apply for public appointments. And that's one of my priorities for next year. Great,
0: thank you very much. And that's something I know that, so you mentioned the Board Apprentice yeah. Scheme and someone you're very concerned about. Yeah, well, the Apprentice Scheme is wonderful
1: yeah. fantastic. Yeah,
4: no, and I think, I, and I completely agree. I think, um, you know, actually with my own responsibilities in the Cabinet Office, um, you know, actually looking and, and levelling up department, looking UK wide and actually doing a lot more work outside London and South East to get people... Interested, aware, and encouraged to apply, and supporting them. I think it's a huge thing to join a board if you haven't been on a board before, and that's why I think the boardroom apprentice giving people, you know, support um, to actually, you know, be a really good member of a board. I think is just so important, and you know, learning from each other. I think learning from, you know, good practice in other in certain departments and bringing that practice back out, you know, back to other departments. But having the data, I think, to show the changes that we are making is really important. But I very much agree with William. Actually, we need to do more. OK.
0: Simone, did you want to add anything on that theme?
3: On, on what, which theme? On diversity. The, the diversity, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, totally, I totally agree with uh, William that diversity shouldn't just be a cottage industry all of its own. Um, and that there is a danger of that... So th- th- there is a certain group, as mentioned in, in his quote, that you know have their own views of what diversity should be, and the importance of the geographical diversity um, is, 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 is huge because most of these public bodies are actually servicing all of the United Kingdom, yeah. you know, and and they actually need to be able to understand and and work with people who who are experiencing problems because of the DVLA, for example, not working or because of, of um, you know, decisions made by the health and safety executive, these actually impact people, you know, this is what people worry about in their, in their daily lives, things that are inconveniencing them that they can't get you know driving tests and all the rest of it so um, so I think that's that's um I, I think that's hugely important the diversity of thought absolutely um, I know that you'll go to ask me about delays later I don't want want me to tackle <coughs> it now you,
0: well yes you you, um, you spoke earlier a little bit
3: okay if, so if, so you know, so um you know so um, I, the point about the delays um, and I will just very quickly cool. touch on on that but once the hard work of getting the data and the, and the and the system, the process running properly, because it's not just about process; yeah. it's about getting good people. Then, actually, the really hard graft and the fun part of actually reaching out, getting different people, um, thinking of ways to to encourage a more diverse and in in all its sort of glory um, is 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 um, is 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 the, is the way to go about it. And you know, and the apprentices scheme is 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 a wonderful example of those sort of initiatives. But they don't come unless you actually have the data to be able to tell people what's coming up and to explain what the process is and to be managing that process if people don't get put off because it's not looked after carefully. So on the data delays, and I really do want to address this because one of the things I, I, I agree with a lot of the recommendations, I funnily enough disagree with the fact that you want to limit the role of ministers in the process because the whole point about the governance code in 2016 was to make sure that ministers are at the heart of the process. And what is always given is oh, there's these ministerial delays and the number of delays that number 10 is held responsible for. I mean, jobs that don't even come to us um, were responsible for delays. So I mean, that's a a real catch-all, sort of long decisions. You know, we didn't. In fact, the fact that number 10 we, we, we did have weekly meetings meant that we knew what was had to come back and that they couldn't get stuck in ministerial offices all the time so which which can sometimes happen so but I cannot emphasize enough the the data I want to give a huge shout out to um, both the team appointments team in number 10 and the cabinet office for really and the team in the Cabinet for for really gripping this and and collecting a lot of data which, you know, and then the public appointments teams in departments for for upping their game. But you can't do it without the data. The reason it's so important to do all these things up front is you get these boring layers of approvals um, and and discussion in advance of a competition opening and really inconveniencing candidates who then have to wait. the, the, the reason that you do it is because if you don't actually uh, sort of agree most of it in advance, or agree the approach and who you might be approaching, or engaging headhunters, they're an important part of the process. But they should be engaged and used, not just be used to farm out what you know process work. Um, and you know, and a, a lot of this um, is, is, is to is to. Um, uh, is 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 to make sure that there's not a curveball halfway through a competition, which is what de- derails things. So, t- so, so to say we want to limit the role of the minister who's ultimately accountable would will just cause more problems at the end. The reason that they, the approvals are there are to make sure that you can s- sort things out on a timely basis, in a timely basis. So, um, so the, the data, the, uh, um, the, the time for planning, just very silly things. When a competition opens, you know, agree the dates already when the panel members can meet to agree a short list and agree with those who have applied and who might be called for interview, that those will be the interview dates. And that, you know, that the delays are often because, oh, that panel member's not in the country for the next four months or for the next three weeks or they're on holiday or, oh, it's Christmas. So it's, agree the date, it's not difficult, but you do need to plan it and it needs proper military planning. Um, you know, going to the, um, the crony is in charge, actually, most of the time it's hard to find very good candidates, particularly for top regulatory roles, because you're asking very talented individuals to give up pretty much all the other um, external interests they might have. Um, And actually talking to people and finding good quality people is, is actually harder than, than you know the, the lazy accusation of cronyism. So and and headhunters, you know, when you engage them, they're they're actually going around their their, their usual sort of suspects, etc., to see who's interested and you're asking them to bring in more people. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a contact board, it's not just process. Um, uh, the, um, the point that Bernard made about chairs of boards is absolutely critical. Once you have a very good chair of a board, you should have the confidence that they will be able to um, fill sort of identify gaps. And they're an important part of the consultative process as well. Um, and if you don't have confidence in your chair, you're not going to engage them. So that's absolutely critical. They should be brought in sooner. And as far as caring for candidates, I cannot emphasize the importance of this enough. And and the adversarial nature of select committees is, is you know, th- th- these are real people. Th- these people have put themselves forward. And to have their reputation in tatters, it's, you know, when when you're working there, you get used to sort of, you know, some... Unpleasant comments in the paper, or whatever. But these are not people who are there to put their names in the paper yes. and and to to have horrible comments made. And I think there needs to be more of a degree of respect, which is what Bernard was advocating. So I totally agree with that. And and iron out problems behind the scenes.
0: Great, Thank you, Simon. Um,
1: we need to get the questions really quick.
0: about that. It's a nightmare
1: for people who who want to go into public service and come from um, completely uh, often from very very
0: quiet backgrounds to suddenly be the object of press abuse. Terrible. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so there's a connection between having the data on what's going on, mm-hmm. um, the delays that, that are happening in the system, and the diversity of the candidates who can come through, because people need to mm-hmm. be able to understand yeah. transparently what the, what the process is. Um, I'm going to come to questions in the room in, in two minutes. The first thing I want to do, though, is just take a question that's come in online, and I'll direct that to Bernard, if that's OK, which is, is it time to reform the legal framework? Um, so we talked a little bit about the basis of the Commissioner's role earlier. Um, uh, the legislation that sets out the, the, the role is in Norden Council. Should there be more solidity in Parliament to the role of the
5: Commissioner and the Governance Code, in your view? No. no. Um, it won't solve anything. Um, put, putting more of the procedure into a legal framework will not mould the attitudes, won't promote the trust, the better conversations. They have to take place independently of that, and they will achieve far more. And can I just say a word about this word cronyism? If you look up the dictionary, it's pretty unpleasant. (laughs) But the word cronyism is used in any context where the minister is appointing someone whom they might know. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, I know what the press is like, and we know they're licensed to do what they do and good for them. But we've got to maintain a perspective. The idea that the minister should, be able to, should have to say, oh, well, I can't possibly appoint that person because I know them. I mean, that would be ridiculous. And when you think about it, what is called cronyism is mostly referring to the natural networks that exist in any democratic state. And uh, those networks are very important and they're part of the accountability network as well as the, um, the power distribution network and um, we need to have people in charge of public appointments and scrutinising public appointments need to have a much more grown-up attitude um, about this than pretending that somehow nobody should know anybody for it to be right and proper
0: thank you so let's turn to questions in the room Uh, please wait for the microphone to reach you uh, and please tell us who you are and um, where you're from. If there's anybody next door in the overflow who wants to answer a question, ask a question, please put your head round the door so that I can okay. see you. Um, please keep questions brief and relevant to the subject of public appointments. Panelists will not feel obliged to answer questions on other subjects. Um, can I take um, the gentleman in the middle, second row back, uh, and the uh, lady in it with the brown, Yes, yes, with her hand up at the back there afterwards. Yes.
1: Nicholas MacLean, historian. Uh, I hope this question uh, falls within the remit of public appointments. But as delay has been mentioned a few times, I wanted to raise the case of uh, the ethics advisor to the government. It's now nearly five months since Lord Guyte resigned. Are there lessons to be learned uh, about the lack of a
0: successor? Thank you, and the lady at the back. I'll take one more if
6: people. Hi, um, Mita from Young Trustees Movement. Um, currently less than 3% of trustees are under the age of 30 while one in 12 trustees are called either John or David. So obviously it's no secret that trustee diversity is an issue. Um, and while public appointments only makes part of that, we would love to see public appointments leading this change. Now young people have told us there are three key areas that they feel most need reform.
0: This is turning into okay. a question I think.
6: Okay, cool. Um, I'll, I'll so just briefly summarise it because...
0: Trustees are too old. Well, any, any other elements? Yeah,
6: three questions. There? First, so, which kind of link to the same thing. What knowledge is being valued? Because a lot of the job descriptions aren't valuing key service users that or, or end service users of, or uh, of boards that are working in those areas. Second thing is due diligence... Um, Currently, if you have said something controversial to the government, you can be blocked. So many young people who would be amazing in these roles have told us they've been blocked for those reasons. And then the third thing is what are we doing to ensure that diversity of thought and perspectives are being heard on these boards because um, currently uh, 20% of the reason why young people leave boards is a feeling that they don't belong. Um, Thank you. Okay, thank you.
0: Um, And the gentleman sitting on the floor, please
7: is a bit of an establishment-loving. Please sorry. Oh, sorry. This is all a bit of an establishment-loving and far too cosy, I think. Um, and I, but what I would ask about is public appointments at a rather lower level than the, the ones you've been talking about. Whenever there's a scandal in the NHS, and we've had goodness knows how many all over the country in recent years, my first, the first question I ask myself is, what were the members of the board, what were the non-executive members of the board doing when that scandal was going on? What did they know about it? Did they have any hint of it? Why didn't they know? If they didn't know about it, why didn't they know about it? Why, what is the point, point of appointing people to boards like that? If a scandal will take place and it just doesn't come across their radar, isn't there something wrong with the appointment of lay people to public bodies? And shouldn't government, maybe the IFG, maybe some academic institution, be trying to work out how lay members of boards can operate a bit more effectively than they clearly are doing in many walks of life. And I speak as a a lay member of a couple of, have been of a couple of university boards in recent years, where I've particularly come to that that feeling.
0: Great, thank you very much. Um, So I'm gonna come to you, Jonathan, first, because you didn't get a second um, bite of the cherry earlier. I think there's questions there around the ethics advisor. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess the decision there is less an appointment question than a decision not to appoint, but you, you, you may wish to comment. Um, The question on trustees speaks to a a number of the really thorny diversity questions actually around um, whether whether people uh, with the right um, skills are being uh, um, recruited, um, the way vetting is done um, and whether different perspectives are heard on boards and then uh, looking at lay people on boards and whether they're (laughs) actually on the ball and competent to oversee um, the the organisations they're involved in.
2: I think the independent advisor on ministerial interests. Point. I, I, I mean, I don't think that's fundamentally a problem with the appointments process at the moment. It's a question of whether there is a political will to have that role. And I think uh, the, the pre- our previous prime minister uh, indicated that she was not enthused at the idea, um, and we haven't heard yet from the current prime minister, so we'll see what comes out. But I, I, think, the pro- it, it, I think that's a slightly different issue from the process of appointment, uh, and therefore, I mean, I think it's an important issue. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's quite the, you know, just, just an issue about how the process works. Uh, the question of younger people on boards and, and trustees, um, you know, and I'm a trustee of several charities, and it is quite difficult to get younger people, partly, well, in my experience, it can be quite difficult to get younger people onto the boards, partly because it does take quite a lot of time, and quite a lot of people feel that they are being... Um, you know the, the, the time commitment is not insignificant so you do get a disproportionate number of early retired type people yeah. uh, and I do think that's a problem uh, where employers actively encourage their staff to serve on boards that can be a real help and I've seen this in a school governance context where you know major employers have said you can have some time off and I think that's really really positive and it is then seen as a positive aspect to their career development, rather than not being at the not being at the office. And I think if we can encourage that amongst employers, that's extremely useful. The question about are non-execs all you know up to some of the uh, some of the roles. Uh, where there are, where scandals come, uh, come about. Funnily enough, I spent quite a long time last week speaking to a non-executive director on the East, he- Health, uh, East Kent Health Board, who, of course, were subject to a very, very critical report. Um, and, you know, the, the, certainly that, uh, some people, if they are there purely, you know, and they haven't had experience of boards, and that's one of the reasons why the board um, uh, apprenticeship scheme is, is important, it can be quite difficult to get behind what the executive tell you, you know, and I've found that myself as a director, you know, and I've kind of used to poking around at things. Um, so I don't underestimate how difficult it can be if you have a, an executive who don't want to share information uh, and there are various ways, you know, you try and do that and you try and ensure there's appropriate, you know, you kick the tyres, you go and do the internal audit, etc. But I, don't, I wouldn't be too critical necessarily of non-execs, um, because the principal responsibility rests with the executives. And if the executives are fighting the board, you need to, you know, it's quite a difficult job, actually, to get behind that. And it is part of the job is to get behind it. Uh, but I, you know... I, I, I wouldn't underestimate how difficult that can sometimes be.
0: Thank you. Um, given that we've got limited time, I'd like to take a little bit more from the from the floor and then, and then come back to the other panellists if, if that's okay. Is there anybody else who wants to um, ask a question? Uh, Henry at the back, in the corner. Um, and then the gentleman sitting behind here who who is. Um, hi, uh, I wondered if uh, there were any thoughts on the panel about what could be done in terms of um, the appointments that select committees actually are looking at because there are certain appointments which, you know, people might feel that select committees should be looking at and, and it certainly maybe some that select committees don't need to look at. I mean, I, I was thinking of the recent example of the appointment to Holac of Harry Mount, um, who there was a very long appointment process, it seems, but then he resigned within a month and it's the sort of thing where maybe if a select committee had spoken to him before it happened, maybe that might, sort of, might not have arose. Thank you. And the gentleman's in the second row back. Thanks.
2: Uh, Alistair Smith, University of Sussex. In the last uh, year, uh, Bayes has run, I think, four competitions for significant regulatory roles. Uh, And in each case, uh, the independent court member of the committee uh, had very, close relationship with the Conservative Party, two peers, one MSP, one economic advisor to the Prime Minister. I'd like to ask uh, William Shawcross whether he has a view about uh, the practice of, pretty systematically it looks like, appointing independent members of of these panels who have political affiliations with one party.
0: Great. Thank you and as our third question I'll take one from online actually this is from William Salisbury who asks is the definition of public appointments too selective some appointments such as policy dollars seem to fall outside it. we've talked about that a little bit we might want to pick that up um, a little more so um, the focus of select committees um, the um, independent members of uh, selection panels where are regulatory roles and their political engagement and then the scope of the appointments process. Uh, William, I'll turn to you first because that middle question was directed specifically to
1: you. Yeah, um, obviously that is an issue that um, uh, can be seen to be an issue. Uh, I always have to remember that ministers have a right to appoint. My role is to make sure that the panel is done, uh, uh, constructed properly. And as I said at the beginning, I think political activity is allowed by panelists, and they can't all be new to us in terms of their political affiliations, but it must be declared. And when we've looked at um, particularly the senior independent members of of, uh, important panels like the BBC or Ofcom I've mentioned before, um, that's really, really crucial. I have um, questioned a number of independent panel members over the last year, and I'm sure I will do so. And whenever I have questioned whether their independence was adequate or whether their nature of the relationship with the government uh, uh, of the ruling party uh, was too close, I have had had no comeback. I've had no, no, in no case, I don't think, has the department or the minister said, "Um, you're wrong and the, the, the independent member has been changed. I don't know the two that you've mentioned. Uh, I'm not, and I, hadn't, I wasn't aware of those two. But as I say, uh, w- my role and the a panel role is to make sure the process under the code is properly run, and it has been, I think. And as this, is a, this is a democracy. And a new, a new government will, is allowed, or any government is allowed, to appoint people who it thinks agrees with its policies and that's something that is, is proper, I think, in a, demo,
0: in a democratic society. Thanks so much. I'm gonna give Simon and Sue and Bernard an opportunity if they want to come back on any of those questions really briefly, because it'd be good to take
5: Well, on, on, on the, I hadn't, hadn't followed the Holac drama, but the, um, I don't think, I think select committees must be confined to a relatively few major public appointments. And I think the suggestion that they should be able to pass on some of the ones that are allocated for pre-appointment scrutiny um, is a good one because it's not always necessary if, it's, if there is a consensus about that within the committee um, but I think that we don't want to move to an American system where the whole thing up is sort of the whole thing is held up by these interminable um, pre-appointment hearings. our pre-appointment hearings are not on the American model we don't have that kind of adversarial system about pre-appointment hearings, nor should we because we, <coughs> we need to get a more agile system. On the definition of public appointments being too narrow, well, where do you stop? I mean, permanent secretaries? Should there be pre-appointment hearings for permanent secretaries? Oops.
3: Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs>
5: but I mean, you know, there are certain things which, you know, are in the government. you have got to remember that, that Parliament doesn't run the country. Parliament is not the government. Parliament controls the supply of money to the government, uh, uh, controls legislation, um, uh, uh, has to pass the legislation the government wants, but the government runs the country. and And one of the strengths of our system, even through all the turmoil we've just been through recently, the country carries on running. Um, I think the question on on scope is is really
0: one about where appointments are already being made by ministers. Mm -hmm. There are some such appointments which are not currently regulated by the Commissioner. So, for instance, appointments to chairs of executive agencies, which can sometimes be quite large, should they be regulated?
5: Um, It's something the Liaison Committee constantly looks at. Um, I mean, what do you call an executive agency? I mean, there are many, many different kinds of public body. Um, If it's a really significant appointment... Um, What we did a few years ago is we collected opinions from around all the select committees and sent a list to the government and said these are the ones we think we should have pre-appointment hearings for Um, and that's a constant dialogue between the liaison committee and 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 the (coughs) government but any suggestions please send them on a stamped addressed envelope and um, (laughs) uh, and we will consider them. Thank you. I I think just
4: on that I think that some of those appointments like the executive agencies they actually may be civil service appointments and therefore Mm -hmm. regulated by the civil service commission um, I wanted to pick up on some questions that were actually raised before that batch around young, getting younger people onto boards. I definitely want younger people. I mean, you know, in the office, you have loads of young people. They're absolutely fantastic giving their views. We need them on our public boards and public appointments. And I'd love to have a separate chat about the boardroom apprentice. Um, but actually, I think the other thing I would say is that many, a number of years ago, and actually spearheaded by someone and the work to change the form, the application. We used to have a very competency-based form for public appointments. I don't think many people would apply for it except for the people that are very good at the cut and paste and actually have got the experience to do that. I think the focusing on people's ability is a much better way of actually getting people in, but we've got a long way to go. And actually, when I was in Northern Ireland, I'd taken the boardroom apprentice scheme from there, which is brilliant. But they have a very competency-based, very long process form. And I actually don't think it's bringing about the change that, you know, enough change there. So I think there, there there are things that we have learned. But I'd love, I would so love for every board to have an apprentice. And then we would get more young people and it would be fantastic.
5: But domain knowledge and experience in the field is just as an important policy.
4: It is, how
5: you, how but how
4: do you get that if you can't get on a board? I no, mean, and, how and do For you... young people, I
5: totally, totally accept what you're saying, yes. Yeah. For young people.
4: yeah, I think, you know, we definitely need that. And, that, and they will bring that diversity of thought, that challenge. Mm. I think it's brilliant, I think yeah. more of them. I would actually make the boardroom Apprentice, I'd give it a kite mark. And so if you've been an apprentice, actually, you haven't got to have years of experience, you've actually had, you've succeeded in the apprenticeship scheme and it's we should good. see how we <laughs> we should see how we can bring them onto boards without actually having to go through all of those <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. i shall no, That's a wonderful one. Thank
0: you. You. We'll do, we'll try to do that.
4: Fantastic. Oh, do there you go. We're going to do that.
0: I want to take a couple more questions and then I'm going to come to Simon to have the the lion's share of the final response time, and then everybody can have just a thirty seconds
3: wrap <laughs> really? off at the end um, uh, if she
0: wants it. Um,
3: can I just make one point? On you, you, you made the very valid point that uh, the, the va- only the value of these jobs is that is for the end service user, and that's actually the only important yeah. thing, as far as I'm concerned. You know, at the end of the day, you're actually meant to be serving the public, yeah. and these these bodies are those of implementation to go to the point I made at the beginning, which is if it's not working properly, that's not okay. So I so I do think there's quite an important distinction between people who might not necessarily be uh, politically aligned with the government but those people who are actively hostile to the direction of travel because it is very important that the government has got people who are at least aligned with their vision of how that service needs to be, you know, um, de- delivered because without that there is a- an inherent problem because that's what you're judged on come an election and whether or not you've done that job yeah. properly. So uh, just, just on that point. And on the independent point, for uh, the independent panel members, for Bays, I don't know those particular appointments, but there is actually a definition of independent, which is you are independent of the department and independent of the body, um, and political activity needs to be declared for the very senior jobs. There are senior independent panel members, and they can have no political activity. So, um, so there are checks and balances on that.
0: Thank you. A um, couple of interesting questions have come in online. Um, uh, The most uh, high-profile is from Anonymous, um, wanting to know how we're dealing with the ever-decreasing pool of applicants for lower-profile public appointments roles. Also, uh, Summer um, raises the question of public appointments teams in government and the um, importance that they are given as a, as a professional, as a specialism in government. Yeah. And can more be done to, yeah. to enhance that. I'll take a couple of quick comments in the room uh, before we come back. The gentleman with his hand up standing there at the back and the lady in the green top.
5: Yeah, it's Chris from The Times. i trying to follow up with the point about the independent advisor on ministerial interests, given all the talk about the, not only the reality but the perception that this isn't a closed shop, that this is a fair process. I mean, how important is this that the top of government sends this signal that actually they want to hold themselves to, to these standards and actually that therefore the Prime Minister does get on with appointing someone to, to scrutinise themselves as well as the people who are appointed to, to run a public organisations. Thank you.
4: Tanya Castell, uh, founding ambassador of uh, Changing the Chemistry, Promoting Diversity of Thought in the boardroom, been going 11 years. Um, interested to hear about how um, you're looking to, I guess, broaden the scope and encourage more people. Um, I guess the one thing I'm concerned about, given what we've seen, is, is how we mitigate for unconscious <coughs> bias, because if we, some of those structures and competencies are to help mitigate bias, I'd be interested to know what is planned to try and address that through the recruitment process given, no human is perfect.
0: Thank you you very much. So um, I'm gonna give each of the panelists 30 seconds or less before we conclude to respond to anything they haven't yet picked up. Uh, Simone, do you wanna start?
3: No, simply, I was interested in the two questions are related in terms of the low level um, applicants. If there are more of them, that's great. We're reaching out a bit more. and, but to go to the, was it Sumatra? The, the, the SUMA, uh, yeah, the the public appointments teams in departments. I started off by saying I thought they were the poor relations. They shouldn't be. This, these are actually very important appointments. And the fact that Number 10 sh- was showed more of an interest has raised their profile. They should absolutely. It's, it's a difficult job. It, headhunters are paid quite a lot of money to do these things. They should be used sparingly. So should um, and this sort of that sort of expertise should be translated into the public appointment teams. Thanks so much. Sue. I think
4: the, um, I'm just going to pick up on the uh, I suppose the, the, the lower profile appointments. I think they are absolutely critical because that is the way you actually get experience and knowledge. And uh, you know, I think we need to do I think we need to do more actually um, to uh, to you know to to encourage people to apply for those appointments. Thank
5: okay. you, Bernard. Um, on the question of the prime minister's advisor on independent advisor on ministerial interests. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, the prime minister should appoint one as quickly as possible. Uh, maybe it should have a different role and have different powers. <laughs> uh, that's a separate question. I think he should get on the appointment. Mm-hmm. And I'd be very surprised if he wasn't mm-hmm. making progress with that very quickly, but also just to add, thank you to all those who apply for public appointments. Yeah. Um, I have never met anybody applying for a public appointment who wasn't genuinely interested in doing something very, very often for far less money than they could possibly earn doing other things. Um, uh, A lot of people are very interested in giving in public service and we should make it as rewarding as possible in every way other than the money um, that that they take on those roles. Um, uh, And they shouldn't, shouldn't end in humiliation and disaster for them which is occasionally happens, but it must not be allowed to happen.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um, William. Well, I agree with
1: with that uh, that entirely. And it's very important to appreciate and to thank um, all those who apply for not a little in actually carry out public appointments. Um, I'd just like to read you a few words from Lord Nolan, whose report back in the mid-90s really set up much, it created the architecture of much of what we've been discussing today and certainly the um, Commissioner for Public Appointments. And I think this this whole session represents something of what he said. He said, "I, I believe democracy works in this country because its actions are monitored by independent institutions and individuals. Our democracy is underpinned by the integrity and political neutrality of the civil service, the judges, the armed forces, and the police. The members of these institutions must be prepared to protest against any misuse of powers. And I think what we've seen today in all of your questions and, and, and all the answers from people, much more skilled than I, um, is that sort of process in working. This is, the, this is a, a, a small battalion, if you like, in, mm. is a, is it, it's, it's in, in IFG, and I think it's, and the questions that you have all have been asked and all the things we've been discussing are incredibly important, to make sure there is a continual process of examination of the systems that we have. But I agree with Lord, at at the risk of being too establishment, I agree with Lord Nolan that the system we have is (laughs) remarkably good and has withstand extraordinary pressures. And part of that, if I may say so, is because we have a a constitutional monarchy which provides the framework for all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um,
2: And uh, finally, Jonathan. I wanted to pick up a point which is sort of partly what William was talking about, which is that I think from our committee's point of view there are there are different sorts of public body and we need to think about them slightly differently there are those public bodies that are very important in delivering public services in enabling the government to do its job uh, and to to meet its commitments Uh, but there are other bodies whose job it is to safeguard the constitution to safeguard the ethical framework of government and those are the ones and which we have recommended need particular care to ensure that they do stand apart from any political pressures
0: and therefore I think we need to think about those two categories of body slightly differently. Thank you very much um, uh, and please join me in thanking all of our panel, William Shawcross, Jonathan Evans, Simone Finn, Sue Gray and Bernard Jenkin. <laughs> I'm so I'm sorry we didn't get to all of the questions. Thank you for those of you who had them uh, ready to go. Um, If if you're in the room, do feel free to continue the conversation over refreshments on the landing. My co-author Grant is also here. He's at the back at the moment. Um, So um, feel free to to catch him if you want to talk about the report. And if your interest is piqued, it's called Reforming Public Appointments, uh, and you you can look it up and read more. Um, please join us for our next event at the Institute on Monday, the 21st of November, establishing new public bodies. What have we learnt? And you can register now on the IFG website for that. And I hope to see you there.
6: Uh, thank you all very much for coming, and goodbye.